All right, we are back. Let's talk about science and technology, maybe a little bit of politics thrown in, and, and perhaps go down under to talk to Pamela Taylor about that annular eclipse that uh, went down in the land of Oz. Let's do a little follow-up on our talk with uh, David Lynch, who had some, had some reservations about smart meters in the Sacramento area. Article from New Scientist some months back notes that utility meters do tell burglars when your house is empty. Noted the magazine, criminals no longer need to stake out a house or a business to monitor the inhabitants' comings and goings. Now they can simply pick up wireless signals broadcast by the building's utility meters. Article notes that here in the U.S., a third of the country's meters, more than 40 million, have been changed to new time-saving devices, which broadcast readings by radio every 30 seconds. Again, you know, can't have people doing jobs. Let's have machines and, and, uh, and sweatshop workers in Asia. It appears as though David Lynch had a point. Article quotes Klaus Kursawe, a security researcher at Radborn University in the Netherlands, saying, I consider it an embarrassment that this kind of technology is deployed with no protection whatsoever. Of course, the key here, energy usage often drops to near zero when a house is empty. So check on the readings. You can find out whether people are home or not. Speaking of menacing technology, and I guess we are, how about this from the Washington Post, May 20th of this year, article by Ellen Nakashima, which states that Chinese hackers who breached Google's servers several years ago gained access to a sensitive database with years' worth of information about U.S. surveillance targets, according to current and former government officials. The breach appears to have been aimed at unearthing the identities of Chinese intelligence operatives in the U.S. who may have been under surveillance by American law enforcement agencies. Peace notes, it's unclear how much hackers were able to discover, but adds that former U.S. officials familiar with the breach say the Chinese stood to gain valuable intelligence. Peace further notes that although Google did disclose intrusions by Chinese hackers in 2010, it made no reference to the breach of the database with information on court orders. Google declined comment for the article, as, as did the FBI which does go on to note that the U.S. has been concerned about Chinese hacking since at least the early 2000s when network intrusions were discovered at U.S. energy labs and defense firms. The Chinese, according to government academic and industry analysts, have stolen massive volumes of data from companies in sectors including defense, technology, aerospace, and oil and gas. Prompting General Keith Alexander, National Security Agency Director, to call this proprietary data theft the greatest transfer of wealth in history. Of course, he may have been writing that before the Wall Street bailout back in 2008. I'm not sure. But we promise to continue to watch what the Chinese army and uh, hackers seem to be up to, invading uh, every space here in uh, the U.S. of A. And I was quite curious to note a sort of parallel bit of data from The Economist, which was in this case, reviewing a book about World War II titled Those Angry Days, Roosevelt, Lindbergh, and America's Fight Over World War II. It was by Lynn Olson from Random House. And there were some curious things in it worth kicking around. Starting with the fact, we might remind Americans, that uh, the U.S. did not enter World War II until the battle was into its second year. The Economist noted that for two terrifying years... After it declared war on Germany, Britain did not know that America would come to its aid, adding that Britain made an extraordinary effort to bring America into the war before it was too late, with 
Franklin Roosevelt's tacit approval, hundreds of British agents flooded neutral America, secretly spying on isolationist politicians, Axis diplomats, and Nazi sympathizers, and openly wooing public opinion with lectures, public broadcasts, radio broadcasts, and stories planted in friendly newspapers, which the magazine notes, some of which were true. Curious book. We might want to get it for this program. Maybe see about interviewing Lynn Olson. Uh, they note that, uh, uh, that in defense of America's pacifism, as World War II started, uh, Americans felt with some reason that their country had been dragged into the First World War by clever British propaganda and promises that Americans killed in Europe were making the world safe for democracy. I remember as a youth asking my grandfather after he commented about how you know, World War I was supposed to be the, world, the war to end all wars that, um, well, I asked him if it hadn't done that. I remember the look on his face. I'll never forget that look on his face as he sort of wistfully said, no, no, it didn't. But uh, 20 years later, as World War II um, was raging, Peace notes that uh, a lot of army officers, senators, press barons, or students at Yale and Harvard were questioning whether there was any great moral difference between Britain and Nazi Germany, a view which was often tinged with anti-Semitism. Review notes the British were not let off scot-free in this analysis. In addition to planting propaganda, British agents broke American laws, uh, tapping phones, opening letters, even forging a map given to Roosevelt supposedly showing Nazi plans to take over Latin America. They also note curiously that snobbery played into Britain's hands, given that East Coast Anglophiles and Wall Street millionaires pushed this country toward uh, an engagement in war against the isolationist forces which were drawn from the prairie states and uh, the small towns of Middle America. And the last thing I think I'll quote from their review, they note that among the heroes... In the book are Wendell Wilkie, the Republican presidential candidate in 1940. After his defeat, he backed Roosevelt and vitally campaigned for Americans to be conscripted and trained for war and for Britain to be sent aid. That, it's interesting to remember now, enraged many in the Republican Party, but, notes the piece, may have helped avert a Nazi victory. And let's, uh, let's come forward in time to talk about what some Republicans are up to now. I like the piece by Dana Milbank uh, from The Bee last month talking about Senator Ted Cruz. Senator, Texan, Harvard grad, and <laughs> darling of the Tea Party. Dana Milbank notes how Ted Cruz has proved to be a master of hogging the spotlight in Washington, a place filled with people who know how to hog the spotlight. To quote from the piece, Ted Cruz is 42, the same age Joe McCarthy was when he amassed power in the Senate with his allegations of communist infiltration. Tailgunner Ted debuted in the Senate this year with the insinuation that Chuck Hagel, now the defense secretary, may have been on the payroll of the North Koreans. Cruz also wrote in Politico that, quote, Hagel's nomination has been publicly celebrated by the Iranian government, end quote. He later alleged that Democrats had told the Catholic Church to, quote, change your religious beliefs or we'll use our power in the federal government to shut down your charities and your hospitals, end quote. But he is bipartisan. Apparently, Cruz is now turning his incendiary allegations against his fellow Republicans. Talking about the, the amnesty plan of Senator Mark Rubio, Republican of Florida, uh, Cruz said that such a plan would make a chump of legal immigrants. On guns, he said the background checks uh, uh, 
negotiated by Senator Pat Toomey, Republican from Pennsylvania, in a bipartisan compromise, would lead to a national gun registry. An outcome the doomed proposal explicitly prohibited. I don't know. We're going to be seeing more of Ted Cruz in the future, I'm pretty sure. As Milbank notes, I've argued before that Cruz is more cunning than ideologic. He's an Ivy League-educated, skilled debater who has perfected a look of faux earnestness that suggests his every pronouncement is the most important oration since Gettysburg. Cruz has correctly calculated that the way to power among Senate Republicans is through attention-grabbing accusations. So, I uh, guess we better keep an eye on this guy, huh? But, uh, well, I'll just quote from Milbank again. He was on a roll, I guess, of late, talking about, in this case, the hearings uh, to OK Penny Pritzker as the new Commerce uh, Secretary in the Obama administration. To quote from Milbank again, President Barack Obama bested Mitt Romney by portraying his Republican opponent as a rich businessman who used offshore tax havens and ran enterprises into the ground without regard for working people. Last Thursday, senators held a confirmation hearing for Obama's nominee for the Secretary of Commerce. A billionaire who benefits from offshore tax havens, whose family owned a failed savings alone, and who's accused by unions of mistreating workers. Said Milbank, turns out the wealthy didn't lose the 2012 election. Rather, the Republican rich lost to the Democratic rich. He said her confirmation hearing was a reminder of how wealth is power in Washington. He quoted from some senators. Jay Rockefeller, estimated worth $103 million. You will certainly have my vote. Mark Warner, worth $228 million. My hope is this committee will recommend you. Missouri Democrat Claire McCaskill, worth $22 million. I find it very refreshing to find someone who's stepping up like you in this position. Milbank said this hearing was in its closing minutes before anybody mentioned the tax havens uh, she was taking advantage of. Ranking Republican John Thune of South Dakota did so almost apologetically, saying he was going to channel Senator Chuck Grassley, who's not on the committee, who uh, had said it would be hypocritical not to press Pritzker on the kind of tax avoidance activity that the president dismisses as fat cat shenanigans for others. Said Pritzker in her own defense, I am the beneficiary of offshore family trusts that were set up when I was a little girl. I didn't create them. I don't direct them. Well then, let's talk about our president. However, briefly, Anita Kumar, writing in McClatchy newspapers, noted last March that on his first day in office, Obama offered a sweeping promise of transparency, issuing a number of executive actions to provide more openness at every level of the federal government and greater disclosure under the Freedom of Information Act. But, noted Kumar, while some agencies have embraced open government, others have failed to provide basic information or write concrete goals. Some have erected new hurdles, such as more fees for those seeking records. And yes, a lot of us have been uh, somewhat disappointed with Barack Obama. In that regard, we probably should talk about a piece in uh, The New Yorker from the May 6th issue called Remote Control by Steve Call. We started out talking about how in 1960, Cindy Gottlieb, a CIA chemist, flew to Congo with a carry-on bag containing vials of poison and a hypodermic syringe. He notes it was an era of relative subtlety among CIA assassins. The toxins were intended for the food, drink, or toothpaste of Patrice Lumumba, Congo's prime minister. Gottlieb handed his kit to the CIA's senior officer in Leopoldville, named Larry Devlin. Devlin asked who'd ordered the hit. Gottlieb said, the president. Peace does note that Dwight Eisenhower had had a rather favorable view 
of possibly using political assassinations in in lieu of massive uh, scale warfare. And this did become quite in vogue during the 1950s. The piece notes that putting these theories of assassination into practice was the role of the CIA and the agency's tally of toppled leftists, nationalists, or otherwise unreliable leaders is well known. From Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran in 1953 and Jacobo Arbenz Guzman of Guatemala in 54 to Ngo Dinh Diem of South Vietnam in 63, Salvador Allende of Chile in 1973. Peace notes that not all these schemes went according to plan. A few seemed inspired by Wiley Coyote, noting the CIA once planned to bump off Fidel Castro by passing him an exploding cigar. It's a curious piece, worthy of your perusal, dear listener, um, especially when it goes on to talk about what's happening these days. They noted that during the 1970s, um, Gerald Ford, perhaps not coincidentally a Warren Commission member, took a look at congressional investigations that exposed the extent of some of these CIA plots and issued an executive order banning political assassinations. Like I said, uh, perhaps being a member of the Warren Commission wasn't coincidental here. But coming to the present, they note that after 9-11, George W. Bush, just six days later on September 17th, signed a still-classified directive delegating legal authority to the CIA. Noted J. Kofer Black, the director of the agency's counterterrorist center, the gloves came off. Of course, we should note that J. Kofer Black was the guy that uh, Gary Bernson uh, talked to us about after writing his book Jawbreaker and the search for Osama bin Laden in Tora Bora. Kofor Black was apparently one of those people that didn't see fit to uh, debrief the guy that was <laughs> was on the trail of bin Laden after he returned from Afghanistan, which Bernson thought was a little odd. But lest I digress, the point of all this is that um, these days, the role of armed drones in the war on terror is well known, but uh, for years, neither Obama nor his advisors officially acknowledged their existence. Yet 3,000 people, including an unknown number of civilians, are believed to have died in targeted strikes since 2001. Erotica refers to two books out, The Way of the Knife by Mark Mazzetti and Dirty Wars by Jeremy Scahill, talking about all of this. They note that during the Iraq War, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld urged the Pentagon's clandestine forces under the Joint Special Operations Command to add terrorist hunting to their specialties. He was frustrated by the lead role taken by the CIA in this. They go on to compare the program set up by General Stanley McChrystal in Iran to the Phoenix program during the Vietnam War, where the U.S. tried and failed to suppress the Viet Cong by detaining and assassinating thousands of suspected militants and cadre leaders. There's some dissent on this. Apparently during Obama's first term, General James Cartwright, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is said to have asked why the United States was building a second air force in the form of the CIA's swelling armed drone fleet. Mark Mazzetti quotes Obama's reply as being, the CIA gets what it wants. Article closes with a look at uh, the recent film, The Gatekeepers, wherein Israel's internal security leaders uh, take a look back, uh, sadder and wiser, and conclude that uh, their targeted killings as a counterterrorism policy probably did not work out uh, nearly as well as they had hoped. Anyway, good piece in uh, The New Yorker. Again, remote control by Steve Call. I recommend it highly, dear listener. You, you may want to check it out. Anyway, I meant to do more science and technology. We're, we're out of time in this segment. Would like to take one look back, 
60 years ago yesterday and salute the British mountaineering team that finally succeeded in getting on top of Mount Everest. Yes, the stud of a Sherpa, Tenzing Norgay, and a New Zealand beekeeper, Edmund Hillary, succeeded in their ascent as part of a team led by John Hunt, a British Army colonel. It's funny to read on Wikipedia that they took this thing pretty darn seriously. Most of the climbers had been uh, selected from a team of Eric Shipton, whom the year before had, had made an unsuccessful attempt to climb Cho Oyu. The Joint Himalayan Committee of the Alpine Club and the Royal Geographic Society decided to put John Hunt, because of his military experience, as the head of this expedition. The British felt under particular pressure as the French had received permission to mount a similar expedition in 1954 and the Swiss in 1955, meaning the British would not have another crack at it until 1956 or later. And of course, apparently, frontrunner Eric Shipton didn't help his own cause by making a statement uh, to the committee in 1952 that my well-known dislike of large expeditions and my abhorrence of a competitive element in mountaineering might seem well out of place in the present situation. And you know, by God, we're going to talk about, about Mount Everest. This correspondent did uh, have the pleasure in visiting Nepal in 1988 and sleeping with a view of Mount Everest uh, right outside my window. That was at the Tengboche Monastery. I did not make it up to the Everest base camp, something I'm still sad about, but, uh, you know, it's still on the to-do list. These expeditions that get people killed on Mount Everest are, well, they're just nothing short of a disgrace. <laughs> We're going to have to talk about that in some future programs, but not today. Today, we want to just look back, salute the British and all mountaineers and climbers, and just say, uh, good on you. And on that note, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. 